Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Back to Ashing It Out, everybody. This is episode 37. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my co-host, Colin Couchet. Say, what's up, everybody? What's up, everybody? You start thinking about more clever things to make you say in the beginning of that. They're getting a little boring, eh? No, I like it. I mean, it's consistent. Consistency is king, right? It's our hook. <laughs> you don't All need right. consistency, you just consensus, right? Yeah, <laughs> That's uh, going with the theme of how everything works in, in cryptocurrency. Consensus is the best. So our our, our guest today is Base Zero. Uh, we have Matt and Ken on the phone or on the Meet or on the Google Hangout or whatever you want to call it. And why don't you give us a quick introduction, starting with Ken, as to how you got into the space and what Base Zero is about. <clears throat> Let's see. In the... I guess it was probably five years ago, I got real interested in Bitcoin and uh, wanted to learn more about it. So I wrote a Bitcoin wallet um, to learn about the technology and meet people. And in those uh, two dimensions, it was a big success. Uh, I didn't actually want to uh, maintain a wallet for the rest of my life um, and went on to other things. But some of the things I learned while building the wallet were that there was a lot of trust involved and that understanding where the, the secret material was held and how it was maintained was super important. <clears throat> and that stuck with me. And so some of the people that I met, uh, specifically uh, Miron Kupperman, uh, later we got together and said, uh, what the world needs is a much safer way to store crypto and thus base zero. Yeah. And I'm of, of the, the three of us who founded the company, I'm, I'm the, I'm the newcomer to to crypto. I've only been uh, more interested in it, especially at a technical level, for the past couple of years. Um, and the company's about a year old now. Uh, and I was uh, I was actually working with Maron, our our, our third co-founder, um, on a, a a Lightning Network project, uh, kind of setting up a test Lightning Network and uh, putting it through its paces, just just to kind of learn more about the technology. Uh, and uh, a contact of his actually approached us uh, and needed some help with a, a security system for an exchange. Um, and as we as we dove into that and understood the requirements more, uh, it became clear that this was not a one-off uh, kind of a problem, but that lots of other institutions were going to face similar kinds of issues. Uh, and so we decided to turn it into a product. So why don't See, we that's... do a little like a uh, quick overview of like what but what is base zero? What is the offering? What are y'all doing? What are you solving that other people aren't quite getting right? Yeah. So what what we've built is a is a cold storage solution for that's designed specifically for in, institutions. So it's based uh, on on chain multi sig. Uh, we use offline uh, key holding devices, um, and it's from the ground up designed for uh, institutional custody. 
of crypto assets. And we support a range of them, uh, Bitcoin, Ether, ERC-20 tokens, XRP, uh, and more. And uh, it's a good combination of kind of the, the, the best level of security that you can get uh, with being pretty easy to use. Uh, so we've tried to be really uncompromising about both of those things uh, and uh, be very strict about what you can and can't do with the system, but also make it very accessible uh, so you don't need to dig too deeply into the technical details. So from a user standpoint, what does your system look like? Can you describe it uh, to our audience? Yeah, so uh, it has it has two parts. Uh, there's a software uh, and a hardware component to it. Uh, the software component is a pretty uh, normal looking web app, uh, which you can use to uh, create wallets and to make transactions. Uh, and then there's a handheld device, which uh, you use for the actual signing of the transactions. And that's, that's, that's where the key material lives uh, and where it stays. Um, and so use those two together uh, in order to uh, execute multi-sig transactions to move funds out of cold storage. Now, in your devices that you talk about, they, these are these are not like so you can use like you have a web app uh, and you have you also have a mobile app. But the, the real key here is air gap signing. And mm. um, I, I'm hoping if maybe you could talk to us a little bit about why you designed it that way. And um, how, I mean, it, it's not something something you can't uh, technically like replicate, but it's something that you guys are doing very well. And I want to I want to. See if you could talk a little more about how your system actually is doing these signings and what's the advantages between these, you know, through this air gap signing. Um, yeah. So, and by the way, some of our audience might not know what air gap means. So, you know. Okay. So, uh, air gap means that the device in question is never connected to the network. Um, and in our case, they don't even have uh, radios. So, there's no Wi Fi, there's no Bluetooth, no nothing. Not even USB. <laughs> not even USB. Um, and the point of that is that most attacks uh, uh, do it come through the network. So uh, you connect a, a an unapproved device or go to uh, some something on the web, and the next thing you know, your device has been compromised. So by keeping the device um, cold, by keeping it off the network, um, the secrets that it's holding are protected. Uh, we don't really want to be a hardware company, but when we looked around, there wasn't any hardware easily available which had the right characteristics for us. So we ended up building our own hardware. Uh, the hardware is constructed out of commodity components. Uh, this is important. When you build hardware that's highly specialized for cryptographic purposes, people can see that, and folks in the supply chain can say, oh, that's a treasure, and it's going to hold cryptocurrency someday. So it would be worth my while to modify it so that uh, I can attack it in the future. Our hardware is built out of completely off-the-shelf uh, uh, standard components. So we have a, a standard display, a standard uh, CPU card, and a standard camera. Uh, those devices are, are components are used for many, many, many other things. So it's difficult to identify which ones would go into a crypto device. Um, we put them together and build an offline signer. Uh, the signer is where we generate the keys. Uh, we should probably talk about that at length. Um, and then the keys are held only in the offline signer. 
Actually, there's an exception to that. You need to create a backup. And so we have a system for creating a sharded backup where the different components of the backup can be kept securely in different locations. Um, I'm going to... Questions? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so um, first, I'm assuming that the key derivation comes from uh, a the standard the standard BIP methods that people use now, where you have a 12 to 24 word seed that then provides the entropy for doing key derivation using like HD wallets. Is that true? That's that's correct. So our derivations are compatible with other uh, solutions, so that you could take the uh, key derivation from our system and put it in a different system and use all of the keys the same way. Uh, we're against doing anything in a proprietary fashion, which which prevent the user from using uh, other uh, components as, as necessary. And um, the other part of that, which I wanted to get into, the, the sharded backup, because that, in my opinion, is one of the most uh, vulnerable points of any key management system is how the user does the backup. Um, typically, you'll, you know, in some cases, you'll see users, if we're talking about like uh, wallets that are on phones, they'll take a picture of their seed phrase and keep it in their inner <laughs> photos, right? And it's like, it doesn't, and if you do something like this and people don't quite understand this yet because the technology is new, is that if you, the more you make your seed phrase vulnerable, every single guarantee that the wallet may have in terms of security is completely nullified. So it doesn't matter how secure something is if the thing that backs it all up isn't secure. Well, one of the things that uh, the advantages that we have there and what's different about what we're doing is that this is very much uh, a product for institutions. It's not for consumers. So people aren't kind of just uh, downloading something from the internet and trying to, to do it themselves. Um, we're, you know, working hand in hand uh, with our clients to get them set up and make sure that they uh, follow a secure protocol for doing this. Yeah, but it, you're absolutely correct. The backup is the entire foundation of your security. And so if you do a bad job of it, you lose. Um, however, it is possible to do a good job of it, and it should not be prohibitively expensive. So we recommend, for example, that you use uh, a product like CryptoTag, where you hammer the passphrase, the mnemonic passphrase into uh, uh, piece metal, of titanium, um, and then store it in uh, safe deposit boxes or safes or appropriate spots. Um, yeah. So if, if if any one of those uh, those shards are compromised, uh, they're you know they don't they don't reveal the key on its own. Uh, and so by storing them in multiple secure locations, uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a comparatively easier problem to secure something that you virtually never use. Mm -hmm. So you only need those backups in a disaster recovery scenario. So you can lock them down. You can keep them in very secure locations. Uh, the problem comes when you actually need to use those keys to sign something. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's why we have these two parallel systems. We have uh, the the device which you can use uh, to sign as often as you need to uh, and the backup which you keep separate and uh, almost never touch. And um, I'm assuming, like, sorry, there's, there's, when you say sharded backup, you, does that mean that you're breaking up the, uh, the, 
the word seeds into different sections and moving them around, or are you just redundantly storing them we're, in multiple places? We're using a, a scheme called Shamir Secret Sharing, okay. which if, if you're if not all your listeners are are familiar with it, it's a a, a mathematical method of uh, dividing a key into multiple pieces, which it's it's quite different from just take, taking say twelve words and mm -hmm. uh, breaking them into three groups of four. Um, but uh, they're they're split up such that if you have any one piece, you cannot derive any part of any information about the key, but that if you have, say, two out of the three pieces or three out of the five pieces, then uh, you can construct the whole key. Okay, that makes sense. And so our audience does have an engineering background. Um, the way that Shamir works, just, just for uh, some of you, because we keep bringing it up, um, is that basically there's, in order, you if you have a complex polynomial um, of, you know, uh, what is it called, order n, um, you can figure out exactly what that polynomial is if you have uh, n plus one points. So if you have like a polynomial of size four, uh, so that means it's like its highest order is x to the fourth, um, you can actually, if you had five points, you can actually figure out exactly what that polynomial is. And so the idea behind Shamir secret sharing is that if you add a constant to that, that constant is your secret. So it's just a number. And in order to find out what that number is that makes that exact curve, all you have to have is five points on that curve. And you can actually figure out ex exactly um, what that constant is. And that constant will be your secret. So it's a pretty, pretty cool little, little trick of math to actually divide up a, a share. And what you do is those points would kind of be uh, used to uh, uh, create the 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 um, the uh, secret. Um, so you can just they're basically the the number before so like a x times b whatever they'll be like the a and the b and whatever the uh, what's it called the multiplier before it what is it the scalar before what's that coefficient 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 thank you that's the right word would be kind of like the the way that you actually can derive this new curve um, and so um, or derive the curve actually figure out where it is and that will actually tell you what the constant is and when you know what the constant is and that basically is your secret um, so unless you have all the coefficients for the rest of the polynomial um, you're not going to be able to figure out what the secret is and it's basic the basic just behind Shamir secret share so you can actually send out the coefficients to each one of the uh, terms of the polynomial to uh, different people and until you combine all those terms together, you're not going to be able to figure out what the actual coefficient is. That's me. Yeah. I'm sorry, the yeah, constant is. And you use, you said you're, you're blasting those into basically titanium. So you have, uh, you know, it, it's, it stays there forever. Because I think what a lot of people don't quite understand is that if you put a hard drive in a, in a security vault uh, five years later on, it's probably not, it may not be the same hard drive just based on memory volatility. Yeah, and 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 also, you know, technology changes. Uh, you know, sometime from now, you might not have a have the hardware to interface with that mm -hmm. <laughs> with that drive. It moves pretty fast. But how we use this in practice uh, with the Shamir secret sharing is that since our system is based on multisig, there are actually several keys, uh, and each of them need to be backed up. Uh, so people will do a scheme like, uh, you know, each each key holder will uh, create three shares. Let's say that there are three keys, and each of the three key holders creates three shares of that keys. So there are nine total shares, uh, and then they'll exchange them. So each person 
has one of uh, one of their own shares, uh, one of the second person's shares, one of the third person's shares. Uh, and so uh, alone, they can't construct any keys using those mm -hmm. using those shares. Uh, but that any two people can actually construct all of the keys. That's an interesting way of doing multisig. Yeah, and so it mirrors the, the, the two of three multisig quorum in the backup. Okay. That's an interesting way of doing it. And I assume that the multisig lives um, on a smart contract on Ethereum or some other platform. Where does that live? Uh, that depends on the uh, on the cryptocurrency in question. So Bitcoin has multisig built into the protocol mm -hmm. itself. Um, Ethereum, we use a smart contract. Uh, and in Ripple, they added multisig into the uh, protocol itself as well, but it wasn't in the original Ripple protocol. Um, a little more about the Ethereum smart contract. There have been a lot of Ethereum multisig contracts, and some of them have had trouble. That was my that was my next question that I was going to lead to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we got on board. Uh, I I can't remember the guy's name, but he the name of the contract is the simple multisig. Christian Lundqvist. There we go. Thank you. Um, but the philosophy is to do the absolute minimum necessary to generate multisig behavior. So we can send funds and we can make uh, contract calls, but we don't implement uh, the hundreds of other features that people put into various uh, multi-sig contracts because we feel that the uh, attack surface or mistake surface is too large. Uh, so this contract's quite small and it's being used by a number of people. Um, and so we, we feel like it is more secure than the more complicated ones. Okay. But it, it was it was very important to us to have the all, all of the multi-sig operations actually enforced by the blockchain. We there there are a lot of other systems which are using, say, Shamir secret sharing uh, to manage the actual signing key, uh, and then there's only a single key on the blockchain. Uh, but you know each party is holding a share of it, uh, whereas in our case it's true multi-sig enforced by the blockchain uh, for for regardless of which uh, which cryptocurrency you're using. Cool. So um, getting a little more into the product and what it, it, the user experience of that product is like. Um, I'm a I'm a institutional user and I'd like to send money to someone else, whatever uh, customer, uh, another bank, whatever. I'm, I'm trying to transfer this. I'm trying to execute a transaction what are the steps I would take using your system and what makes them so unique? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll use the example of a, a cryptocurrency exchange um, it, and which everyone should, everyone will be familiar with. Uh, exchanges keep most of their their, their funds around 95% in, in cold storage uh, and uh, only require about 5% uh, to be in an, in an operational like online uh, wallet for distribution. And so someone in the in the exchange uh, will determine how much uh, of an asset needs to be withdrawn from cold storage uh, in a given week or uh, period of time, and uh, will log into Base Zero and uh, create a transaction which uh, transfers those funds from the cold storage wallet into their hot wallet, and. Uh, that that's just an unsigned transaction at this point. You know, it specifies what the destination is and uh, and the amount and so on. Um, but there are no signatures on it. It can't go to the blockchain. It's just a you know uh, a record in our system. And then each of the authorized signers 
for that that cold storage wallet receive a notification that says, hey, there's a new transaction that needs to be signed. Uh, and then uh, they log in, they can see the, the, the transaction in their browser or on their phone. And uh, they, when they're ready to sign, uh, they use their offline signer device and uh, they actually scan a, a QR code from the web application uh, that contains the unsigned transaction. And then, and this part's really, really crucial, the, the device actually displays, it fully decodes the transaction and displays all of the details on the device. So the, the, there are a lot of uh, more consumer grade uh, key management solutions out there, which uh, they, they'll protect the key and uh, allow you to sign with that, with that key without exposing it, um, but it's hard to tell what you're signing. So uh, we display the full transaction on the, the, the offline device where you can can trust uh, that it's been that it hasn't been tampered with, uh, and then you decide, okay, this looks good. I'm going to sign it. Uh, and once you've done that, uh, it presents the signature uh, again in the form of a QR code. You hold the device up to your phone or laptop to scan it, uh, and you're done. Um, and yeah, and it's really cool. It looks like a little Game Boy. Like you've got like a like <laughs> a little game console or a Game Gear or whatever. It's got it's 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 like a, a little device that actually has a screen and the interface. It tells you everything that's on there. It's extremely extensible in that respect. In that, in the future, you could totally add features to this device because of the nature of it, it has its own visual input and visual output basically because uh, you know you can read in from the camera and you can output on the personal screen and then it can also output to another another system from the screen through the air gap. Uh, I think that's really neat um, in that uh, you can add more rich features if necessary. Uh, so it essentially could technically become a development platform. Yeah, you, 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 we, we, we've already extended it in, in a number of interesting ways, including uh, like there, uh, you can configure uh, a like an address book, uh, a, a whitelist of destination addresses. So, uh, in an institutional context, when you're transferring from cold storage, typically you're not sending to a million different places, uh, but you'll transfer to an intermediate hot wallet and then uh, manage from there. Uh, so, if you're only transferring to a few places, it's it's we help you to make that secure by actually keeping track of what those addresses are offline. Uh, and validating that and, and warning you if the address is not one of the expected ones. Can we talk a little, maybe shift gears a bit and talk a little bit about the business case of catering to the institutional uh, investors and like what, what is that market and who are the clients, like who are the clients? Why, why is it so big and why did you build a business around it? Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the world of financial institutions has really taken notice of cryptocurrency in the past couple of years and a couple of things have happened. Uh, for one, uh, there's a lot of demand from their clients to offer services uh, related to cryptocurrency. Um, there are opportunities uh, from in uh, investment and uh, you know in their their regular financial operations to leverage cryptocurrency. Uh, and also there's there was has been a great increase in the amount of value uh in cryptocurrencies so at the same time we have we have institutions who are uh see a big opportunity uh are working with relatively leading edge technology that you know they uh, may not yet have have deep expertise in uh but that it's very important to uh to keep it safe 
and secure. So uh, we uh, we try to enable both the um, what we call crypto native institutions who have kind of started out in the crypto world, uh, but also more traditional financial institutions who are expanding uh, into cryptocurrency. And we see demand uh, on both sides of that. And for, for institutions who have been working with crypto for a while, uh, they've been through a couple of booms already, and uh, they may have felt comfortable uh, keeping their assets secure, you know, using a consumer device or you know even something homegrown. Uh, but then it, a couple of years ago, it 10x in value, and now suddenly that feels a little uncomfortable, and like they may want to uh, take some. Uh, stronger measures to mitigate their risk. So what is, how do you sell this to them? Um, what is, so one of the interesting things about what you guys are doing is that you actually have a product with customers that are directly, it, it's a, it's following a traditional product model. A mm -hmm. lot of the stuff that's on the market right now doesn't follow a traditional product mar model. Um, you know, I mean, yes, your, your typical cold st storage wallet does, but you guys are actually building what seems like a institutional platform that requires a traditional product model, if that makes sense. What do you mean traditional product model? Well, as opposed to like a token sale or uh, some sort of crowd funding kind of way, or, um, you know, like, like, or even a, uh, so even a, a freemium model or something like that, I don't consider to be traditional. And the fact that you guys are actually going out and making something selling that thing and then selling the services around it. This is a very, very, very classic model, business model for, for, uh, for uh, this, for, you know, the IT space. Um, and it really does fit well with the existing kind of way that lawyers and, um, you know, uh, 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 business managers are, are comfortable in interfacing with um, uh, a bit, uh, an organization for uh, bringing a product in-house, if that makes it, using it internally. Um, they're not as comfortable adopting an open source platform that is negotiating money around and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. They're very comfortable with purchasing a highly secure device, sticking it in, you know, dealing with those kind of, you know, provision, provisioning those devices, um, granting access to particular entities for those devices, um, and then uh, having a very consistent purchasing model around that um, with token sales, for instance, uh, like, you know, they don't know how to negotiate something that has a fluctuating value or anything like that. You guys have an actual, you know, like you could cost out your, 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 uh, your, uh, your system. You could tell them exactly how much things are. You could tell them how many they'll need. You could tell me, tell them how much they'll need if they needed to expand. These are things that they can mm -hmm. plan around. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a lot of the existing uh, crypto stuff doesn't really follow that very well. Um, making it very difficult for organizations to know how to handle them. Um, so I, yeah. I find that very interesting in that it's very friendly to these institutions just by default, just by the way it is. Um, and so I was wondering, what is like the sales like? How did you how do you interface with these people? How do you discover their you know how do you identify potential customers? And what is their reaction to the fact that you guys can actually support their existing models? I'm mm. sure they're very pleasantly surprised. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I think that there, there are a few reasons why we we, we went that route. Uh, one of them is uh, as you as you pointed out, uh, it's just much it, it's easy for them to interface 
with us that way. Okay, this is a software product. We 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 buy it, we license it, we use it uh, in the traditional fashion, um, and so the engagement is pretty is pretty clear and simple. Um, also, uh, we um, sorry, I need a second. Uh, oh, uh, the, we uh, where our expertise is 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 in technology. Um, you know, we we don't come from uh, from the world of finance. Um, we're not. Uh, we we don't have a big compliance organization. Um, we're, we're we're engineers, and so we're we're building uh, what we what we're good at, um, and. Uh, we'll work with financial institutions uh, who have uh, expertise in that world uh, to solve their problems as related to cryptocurrency. Uh, and the third reason is <clears throat> that uh, we really believe in the in the, the transformative potential of cryptocurrency, uh, and that in order to really realize uh, that potential, institutions need to be in control of their assets. Um, if you uh, are going to try to do uh, uh, sophisticated types of trading, for example, um, and you know do, do uh, transactions in ways that aren't possible with traditional financial instruments. Um, you need to have your own keys. You need to be able to sign transactions. Whereas if you're uh, entrusting your assets to a third party and saying, "Okay, you know, please hold on to these for me, and I'll 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 come back when I need them," um, you may not be able to do those things. Uh, if, if you don't, if you don't own the keys, then the, the cryptocurrency isn't really in your possession. Does that be that you're like, because you're a non-custodial solution, do you not have to offer insurances or guarantees around the product or service? Uh, well, of course we, we, we offer, uh, offer assurances and guarantees around the product or service, but, um, they're, uh, around the, the, the functionality of the service. So for example, we have a, a service level agreement. Um, and we provide attestations about the security of the product that it does uh, exactly what we say it does. Um, but since the, the customer is actually the practitioner, uh, they're holding the keys, they need to store their backups in a secure location, things like this. So uh, we're, we do our part and the, and the customer does their part. To that end, is it, has the educational aspect of uh, teaching best practices to your clients been difficult, easy? Like explain that. Yeah, it, it, there's a, there's a great variety. Uh, and uh, it, it really depends on the background of the institution. Um, I mean, we, we talk to folks who you know, know this stuff uh, as well as we do. And uh, we, but we, and we also talk to those who are very new to cryptocurrency and need uh need a lot of education so that that is a big part of uh of how we help our customers uh to, to make sure that they they do understand those best practices and uh, are able to apply them yeah um the the education part is probably the biggest part in some sense because what we're seeing is uh, migration of traditional financial folks who know all about uh, finances and regulation and so on and so forth but the technology aspects of uh, key custody is is new to them, and it's very different than anything they're used to. Uh, we've been uh, see, been getting some help from uh, the smart custody folks. Uh, so this is Blockchain Commons. Uh, Christopher Allen is one of the principals of this group, and they're doing workshops which uh, teach people the fundamentals of custody. Uh, the first workshop uh, just was 
uh, last month, and it was for personal custody. So it had a set of uh, advice and directions and techniques and technologies for individuals to to store their own crypto uh, securely. The next set of workshops are for small trusts and then eventually institutions. And they build on each other. So you have to kind of understand the personal level custody first before you move on to institutional level custody. But we strongly encourage uh, the folks to check out uh, what Blockchain Commons is doing with the smart custody uh, uh, initiative because they're really pushing the right stuff. it's important to understand all of the challenges and details of this when you're picking a solution. So we need our customers to be informed in order to understand why our system is better. Um, if the customers aren't informed, then uh, then snake oil may, may look yeah. good. And so we're we're trying to uh, get everybody as educated as they can be. Yeah, because key management in general is not is not restricted to cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency kind of brought it to the forefront, especially as it starts to become the background of how uh, financial assets are managed. But key management in terms of holding things that are valuable that's digital is a problem that will continue to be a problem forever as long as we have the internet. Yeah, and and basically the the, the practice of applied cryptography is, is about reducing uh, information security problems and uh, privacy problems and things in that sphere, reducing them to key management problems. Mm-hmm. And so, at the at the root of all these all these solutions, there is a key, still a key management issue, and that's the part that we're aiming to solve. So, you have these devices. Uh, you have oh, actually, this is this is something I'm not quite sure of. Um, you run your it's all the signings done through this website. Um, meaning, oh, not really. It's done through the it's device. The device sends the, the yeah, but but there's a website involved in this that actually somebody can propose the transaction through. Is that a SaaS service, or are you guys? Are, can somebody? Can an institution deploy that internally so that they're in full control of your 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 system, kind of a you know an internal only like uh, installation of this, or do you guys keep it kind of centralized in the fact that you you have this proposing system um, that you own and you control? Um, yeah, so th- there, there, there's an there's an online side and an offline side uh, to the system, and um, the, the the web app, of course, is part of the the offline side. We also run a a, a fleet of of full nodes for the various networks that we connect to, um, and all that infrastructure is uh, is is multi-tenant, so uh, all of our customers can can use it, um, and we get we get some economies of scale from that, and so it's. Uh, you know, relatively uh, low cost and straightforward for uh, for them to use it that way. Uh, it it is possible to license uh, that system to uh, to run on premise, but we've very intentionally designed this system so that the security properties are such that it's not uh, critical for that that system to be trusted. Uh, it's basically passing messages back and forth between the offline signers and and the network and so uh even if the if that system were compromised someone hijacked that web app someone got the login password to your base zero account um they can't sign any transactions they can't touch the assets on the blockchain at all um they might be able to try to trick you into something but that there again that's why it's important that we show you 
exactly what's going on on the offline device. So let's say that someone uh, puts a, uh, a bogus transaction into your base zero account and says, oh, I want to transfer all of your assets into my account instead. Uh, the, the device is going to tell you, show you right away that that's actually what's happening. Uh, and so the choice that you're presented with is not you know, yes or no, but it's saying, here's what's about to happen. Uh, this is the exact transaction that's that's being proposed here. Do you want to sign it or not? So uh, that leads me to kind of something else. When you have this website that people are interacting with um, and you have a tenancy, meaning that you know who those people are, so they're associated with a whitelist of addresses or, or you know, they have addresses and then the whitelist for addresses they could send to um, or can sign or however you want to work that, um, you know who is associated with a particular address. Um, meaning that you can actually measure the flow of assets going in and out of this particular institution personally, correct? Uh, yes, the information, uh, we do have that information. So, uh, so is there any sort of security risk or security protections around uh, protecting that particular data? Meaning that an institution may not want to expose the you know, it's it's fine if you're doing anonymous transactions uh, somewhat uh, on the chain, um, but if you guys have that kind of KYC element integrated into your system where they know where things are transferring around, um, is that sort of like a potential way that you that uh, a security point that you're looking at to protect the users in that respect? Which is why I thought maybe an institution would prefer an on-site version of your thing where they can actually control that in-house. Uh, rather than having you guys be in control of that particular data, yeah, and and that's that's why that's one of the reasons why we uh, why we do have that option. Um, but again, uh, the way the way that systems like this are used in in practice uh, in an institutional context, uh, those transactions are mostly internal. So you're moving funds from this cold storage wallet uh, into this hot wallet, and uh, and vice versa. Uh, and so they're they're not exposed to as much. Uh, transactional information, as uh, as as you might assume, based on the proportion of funds that are there, um, but these are these are bulk movements of funds uh, in between uh, institutional wallets, uh, for the most part. I guess in a lot of in right. a lot of ways, we're going to do much better than what's currently happening. So today, most folks know the cold storage addresses for most exchanges. So large positions moving in and out of cold storage on the exchanges are visible and announced and uh, everyone talks about them. Um, based on using the key derivation paths that we have, we don't have to reuse addresses. So uh, when an exchange uh, accepts a new deposit, it won't be linked to existing uh, exchange cold uh, wallet addresses. They would use a fresh address. So we think we're doing much better in terms of uh, leaking information to the world. Furthermore, it's also a matter of like how much information you're holding and have access to, which creates a honeypot for people to then try and get into it and find that information. Um, if, if based on the use case, you don't have high throughput of transactions, which means that it's more difficult to create um, kind of like address entities through doing forensics on, on these keys and the flow of money through them. Yeah, and, and our focus has really been on uh, ensuring that you can do these transactions in a secure way. Uh, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, developments happening, uh, such as we, we uh, as Colin and, and we saw at the, the Stanford conference, uh, especially around uh, or 
more zero knowledge proofs and uh, constructs for doing anonymous transactions and private transactions. Um, and we, we'll continue to stay uh, stay abreast of those, and uh, we'll, we'll we certainly support uh, more privacy centric chains in our product, like Zcash. Uh, but that's that, that's not the the part of the problem that we're aiming to solve right now. That's kind of what I wanted to ask next is is um, where do you, you you built this solution and a business around it because you think it's going to be useful in a broad use in a, in a broad amount of use cases uh, in the foreseeable future. What what do you see in the foreseeable future that gets you excited? Is there something that you're kind of planning for but isn't here yet? Is there something that uh, is like is here but no one's talking about it that you feel will be a larger portion of uh the market well um it may, it may, may sound uh a little little uh heretical to to say that in this environment but i'm actually really excited for um the uh, traditional financial institutions to really get more involved uh in crypto um because uh i think that there's going to be a lot of uh of interesting innovation that comes from that um, and there's uh, there's already there there are uh, regulatory frameworks that are in place uh, for good reason um, in order to protect uh, customers and uh, and institutional clients uh, of these institutions and uh, we help them to apply those same kind of protections uh, and even better ones uh, at a crypto level and so. As those institutions are kind of joining the the crypto world, um, we're helping them to uh, to onboard and to to adopt best practices. Um, there's more too. The as the cryptocurrency world gets more sophisticated with blockchains, we're seeing the need to control your keys directly becoming more important. A good example is staking. So you know, currently there's not much staking going on, but with Ethereum uh, implementing proof of stake. Uh, financial organizations are going to have to have control of their keys to decide if they want to stake some of that, uh, hypothecate their <laughs> the capital that way uh, in the staking system. And so traditional custodial solutions uh, like Coinbase, where the, the assets are held by Coinbase, will not be as flexible. It won't allow you to engage in smart contract activity where the, uh, the assets are doing more than just sitting there. So... Uh, a lot of excitement comes as the cryptocurrencies become more sophisticated and offer more different things you can do with them. Uh, the need to control your key securely becomes more and more important. Yeah, so we, we think that any institution that uh, is going to be dealing with cryptocurrency will, in the future, uh, need to have control of keys. And that in order to realize the, the, the full potential uh, of cryptocurrency and crypto assets, uh, that has to happen. So this won't be only something that, say, uh, banks and hedge funds and uh, and exchanges need to do, but that regular corporate entities, uh, which have a treasury today uh, in the form of, say, a business bank account, um, will also have a, a crypto treasury um, and that uh, they will want to manage that uh, in many cases in-house. So... Um... Let's just say this takes off, okay? Um, they, you've already got some customers. Let's you know. Let's go the hacky path. People really like this, you know. Um, the people who are using this right now are very impressed. 
Um, your customers are very happy. You're starting to get traction. I already see that. I saw it at SBC. Um, I know that you, um, you're, you're aggressively um, going out and, and showing this. Uh, and um, uh, the, what the happy path is you suddenly have a huge book of, of uh, customers that need you know, their orders for, fulfilled. Um, part of the interesting thing about your story is that you're still small, but you need to scale. What is your, from what I gathered from Ken, uh, you guys are still kind of putting these things together yourself. Um, how do you plan on scaling the operation of actually physically developing these devices? And do you see maybe transitioning more to the mobile app platform as being sort of one of the options for um, low cost scaling? Well, right now we're the most important priority is security. And that means we have to be careful with outsourcing the assembly uh, very much. Uh, we're not, by focusing on high-end institutional customers, the number of units that we have to make is not uh, overwhelming right now. So the current optimization is to build the devices where we can see them being built, um, know uh, where they've been, know who's seen them and who's touched them, um, and can guarantee that when we give a device to a customer, that we know it hasn't uh, been in a bad place. Um, as we scale, we'll have to evaluate that and figure out ways to build things securely at larger scale. Uh, however, the the focus on high end helps us a lot there. Yeah, and I think in the in the long run, um, this uh, there will there will evolve uh, other kinds of devices which are able to perform the the, the signing operation and have the the characteristics and capabilities that we need in a device. As Ken mentioned earlier, uh, we're we're building a custom device just because it's hard to find something uh, that you know has a has a good size capacitive touchscreen, uh, has a camera, and doesn't have any radios in it. Um, you know, basically every consumer device out there uh, is going to have some kind of networking in it because it make, that's what makes it useful. Uh, but in our case, we're we're in, in this this strange position of actually. Uh, wanting a, a negative feature there uh, and making sure that it's not networked. I think yeah, and the, the general purpose computing components is actually even a harder constraint because there are some solutions uh, where people can build custom things, but then again, the supply chain attacks become, you know, if you order a thousand of those from another country and they arrive in a month, who knows where they've been? Yeah, I, I and I... I think people don't quite realize the amount of connectivity that normal devices have and how a lot of people who deliver quote unquote secure devices that have very limited functionality um, mitigate or like kind of get rid of all their guarantees because the, the, the hardware that they use has a tremendous amount of uh, IO associated with it. Meaning that like, yeah, they may only work through various input and output channels of the of the device it actually has bluetooth and all kinds of other things you can you can access that get around all the security measures they put around the things they actually use i mean this is this is probably a massively rampant problem in the um SCADA community yeah this is this is we, we see this a lot uh and there are a lot of projects and and they have their applications especially you know for uh for for individuals who have uh are, are not uh, securing a large amount of funds um, to repurpose, say, a mobile phone 
um, to use as a as a key management device. And it can have a really nice interface. It's a good form factor. It's you know convenient to to use and store. Um, but it also probably has what four, five, six different <laughs> types of radio uh, transceivers in it. Um, and we just don't feel that that's appropriate for uh, an institutional context. Uh, and yes, you can you can not put a SIM card in it, or you can not connect it to a Wi-Fi network. But um, what? Uh, where are you placing your trust? Uh, you know, how how can you be sure, especially and with um, with so much uh, so many components being able to be packed into such a small form factor? Uh, can you really be sure what's what's enabled and what's not, uh, and what's open to the internet? Yeah, obviating those security problems by just never having them as an issue in the first place it, it makes you not have to like you don't have to worry about it if you literally can't do it. And that's that's a a very good way to guarantee that those things can't happen is because the device simply can't do it. Yeah, that's the theme of the going forward is that new businesses, the most secure businesses, won't have any customer information mm -hmm. to protect. So it's by not having something, then you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, yeah, we've been through this that interesting transition with uh, you know, with a lot of data privacy things to where uh, the problem used to be, you know, how, how do you, how do you keep all the data and how do you keep it, you know, uh, keep it backed up and make sure that you don't lose it and you know collect as much of it as possible. And now uh, a lot of institutions are saying, well, what what information do we really need, and you know how 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 short a time can we hold on to it for in order to minimize our risk. So what's the most interesting thing you learned about the space when you started getting into this project? What is uh, what, what what was kind of surprising about about not just institutions, but just building these kind of things in general? Well, um, it was uh, it was surprisingly challenging just to, I think, bootstrap a business uh, in this space because a lot of the infrastructure uh, isn't really there yet. Uh, as a couple of examples, like uh, you know, set, setting up a business bank account for anything to do with crypto uh, turns out to be kind of a hassle. Um, there are a lot of institutions that, uh, you know, you, you, without knowing anything about what your actual product or service is, just the fact that you're in this space is like a warning flag for them. Um, and uh, it's, it's very difficult to advertise your product um, a, you know, as a... Uh, as a, a software company that's working with cryptocurrency, um, it's it's uh, things tools like Google AdWords that are completely standard for all kinds of uh, of other industries and products uh, often just are not available to you. And that was a bit surprising. Cool. So, what are you most excited about in this space, and how do you see uh, how do you see your wallet kind of tying? Or I don't want to call it a wallet, but your signing system, I guess, is uh, tying into that. Well, we're we're continuing to see just uh, a, an explosion in the number of different crypto assets and uh, experimentation with different chains and different uh, types of consensus algorithms and uh, different types of financial instruments that you can build uh, on top of these. Um, and I'm I'm excited to see. Uh, well, some some of those are are just kind of replicating things which already existed, say for uh, for fiat currencies and. Uh, and other financial instruments and doing that for crypto. Um, but uh, we also start to see things that couldn't exist uh, with, uh, with fiat. Um, and some of the things you were talking about in your, in your last episode with, uh, with payment channels and um, you know, ways of, of moving funds uh, around uh, in 
real time with very low fees on a global basis. And uh, I think those things are incredibly exciting. And the opportunity for us as a business is to really provide a, a comprehensive platform for institutions to participate in that whole ecosystem. Um, it's, it's quite a lot of work to keep up with uh, all of the new developments uh, in this area. Uh, and we hope that we can, uh, can make that easier uh, for institutions to participate in uh, because definitely most some of the most exciting stuff is still yet to come. So because you guys are multi-currency and multi-tenant, um, it's pretty much just exchanging one asset for so like Bitcoin for Bitcoin, you know, sending those around. Is there any way to maybe link so that you can actually exchange Bitcoin for Litecoin, Bitcoin for Ethereum, and et cetera, et cetera? Or do you have any plans for that on the roadmap? So we currently don't uh, have any plans to become an exchange, but exchanges are awfully interesting and there are uh, primary customers. So we're very, very interested in ways that we can uh, facilitate uh, transactions through exchanges. Um, yeah, I think that, that's a that's a very interesting idea. Good to know. Roger that. I got the <laughs> smile of, yeah, we're looking into that, but we can't talk about it. Okay, got it. Cool. So I, I guess that's a great way to wrap up the episode and, and trying to figure out, um, is, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we didn't ask you? Um, just, uh, just to mention that, um, our, our website's got a, a, a white paper with some of the, some of the details and the justifications for why we've built things the way that we've built. Um, and we've published uh, an article to medium recently as well. So I just want to invite everybody to come and check out, uh, check out those resources at, at, at base zero.com. We'll definitely include that in the show links with a few other things you've mentioned. Uh, how can people get a hold of you and uh, reach out? Are you on Twitter or is that website the best place to go? Yeah, uh, we're on Twitter, um, and there's a and you can reach us through our uh, through our website. You can find our uh, our Twitter feed there, or send us an email, or um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm Matt Zimmerman. Cool, great guys. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you, you very much for having, for having us. us. And as usual, you can reach me at Colin Couchet on Twitter. That's C-O-L-L-I-N-C-U-S-C-E. And Corey at Corpetty, C-O-R-P-E-T-T-Y on Twitter. And you can see our podcast uh, feed at uh, hashingitout.stream. And also on Twitter, hash, at hashingitoutpod. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, guys. Appreciate it. Great episode. Thanks.